0: We see though these images of light that begin to uh to be shown to us. It's not all darkness. Uh, the first images of light that we have are are the war beacons that are lit. And so now you've got this uh this almost this balance between the literal darkness, and then of course, the you can say the psychological darkness of the war that now is upon them, with the images of light and fire and the beacons that are traveling. Uh, from high top to high top. And so with that war being kindled, you also have fidelity um, right there. What are the war beacons kindling? But sign to Rohan, we're asking you to remember your alliance with us, your oath to us to come in a time of need. And so even in this darkness, you have these images of, of hope.
1: College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco.
2: Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. This fall in the Magnus Fellowship, we wrapped up a course on the Lord of the Rings. It was a three-part course done over three semesters, as I'm sure you guessed. This fall, we are concluding with the return of the king. So today on the podcast, I bring you the first half of the first lecture of this final course on the Lord of the Rings with Dr. Helen Free. Once again, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. MagnusInstitute.org for more.
0: Well, as I said earlier, it's really nice to see uh, several uh, continuing faces from the last two years, Uh, and good to see new faces as well. There's been a a year's hiatus between when we did the uh, the, the, uh, Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers, Um, and so it's good to come back again and now try to wrap this up with the return of the king. Um, I thought one of the first things I wanted to do was to recap some of the themes that we have talked about, both to remind folks that were in the previous seminars, but also for those of you who are new, so that we're all, uh, on the same page regarding the, the themes of the work that I'm focusing on. This is an incredible work and there are dozens of approaches to it. Again, I told you my approach uh, is obviously a Christian one, uh, and it's one that that looks at uh, the workings of providence and the workings of the human person within the work, and specifically, obviously, for this course, uh, friendship. So last year, uh, we talked about the limitation of the human person. We talked about how you see the community always working for the good. Um, one of the major themes that Tolkien continues to reiterate is that people are not to be used for any reason. So the person simply cannot be used. Uh, The person has dignity uh, in and of himself. Um, And so any attempt, uh, even for the good, um, to use a person is uh, an immoral action, is a wrong action. Um, In regards to friendship, just to make sure everyone understands the classical understanding of friendship. And this is just, again, it's, it's what's called pigeon philosophy. It's really quick, little bites. Um, The classical uh, definition of friendship comes from the philosopher Aristotle, who says that everyone wants what is good for himself. And again, if I use himself, I'm talking about universal hymns. I'm not just talking about masculine hymns. I'm talking about universal hymns. It's way too hard to say himself, herself, their selves. So himself. Um, So everybody wants the good for himself. And he says, so in regards to friendship, he'll say that there's three types of things that we love. We love things of pleasure. We love things of usefulness. And we love things of virtue. And he said, friendship then is based on those three things that we love. And so he says there's three types of friendship. Uh, friendships of utility. Um, and that's when you you like somebody, they're friends because they're useful to you. Um, there's friendships of pleasure, which means you like somebody because they amuse you. They're pleasurable to you in some way or another. Um, and the last one is the greatest one. And these are Friendships of virtue. So Aristotle says the perfect friendship um, is between men who are both good and virtuous alike, uh, and so that's the friendship of of virtue. And so in that sense, that friendship is the highest because you love the friend because in some sense they're useful to your own growth in virtue. They're pleasurable because you both take pleasure in the good, uh, and uh, you're both trying to to better the other, and also better yourself in that in that friendship. One of the things that Aristotle explicitly says, and this is important to understand because of how uh, Tolkien's presentation of friendship um, is not strictly Aristotelian, but what he says is that two major things. He says, you can't be friends with people who don't share your same class. So thus a rich person can't be friends with a poor person. Uh, because the virtues of the rich are different from the virtues of the poor. And thus there's an inequality to them and therefore no friendship. So you have to be equal uh, in class, in wealth. Uh, I think it would even go on to say you'd have to be equal in race. Um, so Aristotle says you have to be equal in all these things for a friendship to take place. Um, and that's the basis for the second major thing that Aristotle says, which is he explicitly says that friendship between men and the gods is impossible um, because we're just too different in, regarding, uh, regarding equality. Um, but what we talked about last year was that uh, who radically transforms his classical understanding or categories of friendship, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Um, Jesus comes and true God and true man. And he directly counters what Aristotle presented because on the one hand, Aristotle is right. Man cannot be friends with God, um, but God has chosen to be friends with man. And so therefore, the door to friendship has been opened uh, because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, because of uh, the creator himself uh, opening that door to friendship with, uh, with man. So Jesus Christ offers friendship to, uh, to mankind um and also counters those categories of friendship that aristotle laid out. Um uh, remember aristotle says you have to be friends only with people of your same class. What do you see with the apostles with the relationships that Christ has but uh, a whole dynamic of friendship. And so that's the christian transformation of friendship. J.R. Tolkien, a man of the 20th century, a catholic man of the 20th century, a very faithful catholic man uh, he follows this christian um recategorization of friendship um and so in some sense he follows the classical definition token but um but even more so obviously he follows this christian uh this christian presentation of friendship within uh within his own relationships within the lord of the rings um and so i detailed last year you know, all these different relationships that are present within the work. Uh, and you see that between people who are of the same class that follows the Aristotelian model. So Bilbo and Frodo is, are a perfect example. They're, uh, they habits of the same class and wealth status. Um, but then you see friendships that are very unequal uh, such as Aragorn and Frodo or Aragorn and Sam um, or Elrond and Frodo. Here you have uh, no- nobility, aristocrats, uh, kings, uh, who are friends with peasants, essentially. And so you have that uh, you have that different variation of friendship that Tolkien uh, that Tolkien presents. Um, but he absolutely dramatizes this understanding of perfect friendship, and that is. Uh people who want the good for the other person, um, and wanting the good for the other person results also in good for uh for themselves. Um okay, so it's very important again that for Tolkien the person never can be used as an instrument or as a, a means to an end. Um, this is called utilitarianism. Um, utilitarianism, it violates uh The person, because again, the person is then seen as the means to an end. So whether the end is good or whether the end is bad, the very use of a person as an end is unacceptable. Um, It makes the intention um, uh, bad Uh, because that type of utilitarianism really violates uh, true Christian friendship. And so consider why that is for a moment. Um, it is because the person is not respected. There's something beyond the person that is that is trying to be uh, trying to be achieved. Um, so you see that with how Tolkien presents the ring and the entire quest of of destroying the ring. I'll come back to this important point when we get to the section uh, with Frodo of Mount Doom. Because some have argued that Tolkien does use Frodo to destroy the ring. Um, but we'll talk about whether that's the case, whether it's not. Uh, my position, obviously, is it's not. But I want you all to see how it is that it's not. And if you think that um, that he is being used by the author, uh, then we need to talk about that, too. Um. So that's the issue of of utilitarianism. But the other thing I wanted to to also both bring up for people that are new and also remind people who are who are returning, um, and that is that equally important for Tolkien is that the person, while being extremely important, is not the exalted individual that the Enlightenment. Um, makes of him. Uh, The individual is never and is not meant to be uh, an isolated self. Um, The individual is meant to be within community. And so in that sense, the communal is part of the very definition of self. And so we see that also in Tolkien. Um, it's It's a real problem when people are individuals, when they're apart from the fellowship, when they're apart from the community of friendship um, and bad things happen. So with the Lord of the Rings, we see bad things happen when the members of the fellowship are apart from the fellowship. Obviously right now, the largest example of that from um, people are, have read the whole of the book is when uh, Frodo goes off by himself to think about what to do with the ring at the end of the fellowship of the ring. And uh, Boromir then comes in and Boromir now is separate from the group. Frodo is separate from the group. And then Boromir tries to seize the ring from Frodo. Um, just note as you continue to read The Return of the King, either for the first time, Anne, or for the thousandth time, if that's someone here, that um, Frodo will never again be apart or alone from the time of the fellowship to the chapter of Mount Doom. Um, but note again when the second time is that Frodo is is alone, is an individual, um, something bad happens, which everyone I think already knows what that bad thing is that happens when he is um, alone. Well, technically he's alone when Shalab um, gets him too, but...
3: May I add something? Yes, please. Um, isn't It's been a while since I've read Aristotle, but isn't there a part of Aristotle on friendship where it's about um, to really fully experience something you also have to have like your best friend there with you. And that's what, that's what makes it like the fullest experience possible. Like you can't have that full experience alone. And -hmm. I think you see that too um, in throughout Lord of the Rings is that, that they're experiencing it fully because of the companionship, just like, you know, Gimli, when he goes down into the glittering caves after the battle of the Hornburg and he comes out and all he wants to do is take Legolas to go yeah. see it. And so I think, yeah, there, you also have that aspect of it too. And it's not just that um, when you're alone, bad stuff happens to you. It's like when you're alone, you don't get the full experience of whatever is going on.
0: Yeah. Thanks Caleb. Yeah. And that's a, that's such a very good point about Aristotle. The other uh, major element of Aristotle and friendship or relationship is that he echoes uh, Genesis where he also says man is meant to be in relationship, which okay. is the Genesis man is not meant to be alone um and that full experience of virtue can only then be with a friend with an other yeah so thanks so much for that that clarification by the way i don't normally just talk nonstop as a monologue in case you're thinking oh no it's going to be a long two hours this is just to do a recap of um things we already talked about so that we can get into it's kind of everyone on the same um i don't know intellectual page for entering into um, entering into uh, return of the king. Um, well, just the last the last point of uh, clarification of things we've already talked about, this has to do with the ring of power. Um, so again, with the ring of power, we repeatedly see the temptation to use the the ring prior to the return of the king. Um, side note. Tolkien never intended this to be a trilogy. We often speak about it in terms of trilogy. Um, it only is a trilogy for a, a pretty simple fact, which was paper was really expensive after World War II. And the publisher, Edward uh, Unser, and I forget now the publisher's name I slipped my mind, but it was too expensive for them to publish the whole The Lord of the Rings. They said, we can't do it. It's been like a, I don't know, $2,000 book, 2,000 pound book. And so they said, let's do it in three parts. It'll be cheaper that way and more people will buy it. Um, So it got split up into three parts. Um, But the whole was what Tolkien conceived of, not really a trilogy. But we talk about it in terms of a trilogy now because of how it was published. Um, So we've seen prior to the return of the king, uh, this temptation to use the ring. And the, the ring always tempts people according to their own abilities um, which is why Gandalf was afraid to use it. And Galadriel was afraid to use it. These were are immensely powerful, uh, powerful beings. Um, but the ring, you know, it's kind of a reverse Midas touch. Um, everything it touches becomes evil. It corrupts, it corrupts everything. Um, the ring itself and the power it promises is itself contrary to the nature of friendship. So, it's just for sort of my first initial question for you before we get into tonight's topic. Why? Why is the ring itself contrary to friendship? What do you think?
3: It's about domination. It's mm-hmm. it's about like um, rule over others.
0: Good. Yeah, and how is domination itself then contrary to friendship?
3: It's an inequality.
0: Okay, good. Who can who can, who can yeah. be the one in charge? It's utilitarian. Yep, it's utilitarian. Other people are means to an end, an end to your own power. Um, the very issue of the dominator is to be the one in charge, the one who has uh the one who has power. Um, whenever you enter into that type of power dynamic, um, you immediately exit that Aristotelian understanding of the friendship for the good, the friendship of virtue. And you're immediately back into those lesser categories of, of if, if you could even call it friendship, but Aristotle does, the friendships of utility and the friendships of of pleasure. Um, yeah, so the ring dominates and it uh, it subjugates everything and everyone around the it and the wielder of it um, to um, to itself. So again, who was at the center of the ring but the the ring, the power of the ring itself, and even the wielder of the ring, um, apparently is the one in charge of the ring. But we see the ring is actually in charge of the wielder. We see that most clearly with the pathetic character of of Gollum slash smegel Um, he calls the ring his precious, but what is he but already a slave to um to the ring itself? So when this when when something is at the center and doesn't allow for these relationships, um, then friendship is impossible. So in that sense, it's impossible for friendship, um, to be in any way part of what the ring offers. Um, so there's something different. There's two different categories we have here of the power of friendship versus the power of the ring. And you already know which of those two powers ends up victorious. It will be the power of friendship that defeats what appears to be this all-powerful, all-encompassing, um, uh, undefeatable ring, uh, evil. And it's going to be the power of friendship that does overcome the um, the power of the ring. Um, okay, so before we get into tonight's seminar, I'll stop and see. Do you all have any questions of things that I've said or um, things that I haven't said
1: I do.
0: The questions that we were sent
4: yes. cover a lot
0: more than these first two chapters. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, these are all the questions. Um okay. for- I might Sorry. add to them. Um I guess it wasn't a lot, but uh and these aren't don't feel you have to have you know, like you know, take a little notebook and write down <laughs> answers to every single one of them. Um this isn't a, this isn't a a graded college course, anything like that. Those are just questions that i think that it's helpful to have something to guide your reading you know as you're reading along you can you got to get lost in the work and and that's wonderful as well but if you're hoping to, to move more deeply into a story i think it's good to have some some questions to think about and that kind of forces you to to address some of the the more difficult parts of the of the text so why did this happen or gosh why am i seeing this repeated um, what is the meaning of this symbolism um, or this or this action or this setting? Yeah, so hopefully everybody got those questions. And I'll be turning to them, uh, not all of them, but I'll be turning to a number of them just to guide our own conversation and my own uh, you know, presentation to you all um, in, in regards to this story. But if you did not get the questions, I think just let Anna Kate know and she could send them. Uh, she could send them to you. Okay. Um, you might've seen from the course description on the Magnus website that each of the evenings has a type of title. Uh, and tonight's seminar is entitled Gathering Darkness and the Light of Fidelity. Um, and so I first want to address why did I entitle tonight's seminar this, the so Gathering Darkness and the Light of fidelity and it's kind of appropriate right now because the sun is setting and so it's the darkness is already gathering uh here and we live in the high mountain desert um and it's really warm in the day it's right now 80 degrees in here but as soon as that sun sets whew, it gets really chilly um so hopefully I, I won't be too cold and start shivering in about you know 30 minutes or so <laughs> yeah so why did i entitle tonight's seminar this well, first of all, it's gathering darkness. Um, the book itself begins in darkness. Uh, it's Pippin and it's Gandalf and they're riding hard and it's nighttime. Um, we don't see the day until they enter into Gondor. Uh, again, the uh, the two towers ended, in regards to Pippin, with uh, with his having looked into the Palantir after the, the overthrow of Saruman. Uh, and he sees Sauron himself, and Sauron sees him. And he's almost uh, driven a little mad by seeing, and his mind having been caught by by Sauron. So you have darkness that's a type of um, spiritual darkness, that's Pippin, that's there. But you also have a literal darkness, which is all these images of the night of darkness. You then also see all these symbols, symbolism. Of uh, of decay, a city is in decay. A civilization is far along in the path of decline. And this is this is Gondor. Um, what are some of those symbols? Well, the very first one they meet is a, a wall that, as Gandalf says, you should have been repairing this a long time ago. A little late um, to be repairing this uh, this broken this broken wall. Uh, the very central tree of of Gondor is dead. Um, there's this reference to the lack of children. There's no children in Gondor, and it's not just that they've been sent away. Uh, Barragon says, "We've always had a problem. There's been too few, too few children here." So all this, all these images of um, of decay that that are there, which is a type of of darkness. Uh, the life itself of Gondor is behind the citadels. So Everything is behind these these guardian guardian walls. As this work opens, we see though, these images of light that begin to uh, to be shown to us. It's not all darkness. Uh, the first images of light that we have are uh, are the war beacons that are lit. And so now you've got this uh, this almost this balance between the literal darkness and then of course, the, you can say the psychological, darkness of the war that now is upon them with the images of light and fire and the beacons that are traveling uh, from high top to high top. Um, And so with that war being kindled, uh, you also have fidelity um, right there. What are the war beacons kindling? But sign to Rohan, we're asking you to remember your alliance with us, your oath to us to come in a time of need. And so, even in this darkness, you have these images of uh, of hope that's there, Um, but you also have images of despair. So in this in this opening opening uh, chapter, there's just so much that's going on regarding darkness and uh, darkness and light. Um, You see very much uh, the hope of Pippin, the hope of Baragon, really giving way to despair. Before what is an apparent reality of Mordor's power and the cunning of of Sauron um, to have planned out this war for for so long, so the only thing that beats back this darkness uh, is um, is light. Um, and in this story, the fidelity of the friends to each other through their fidelity to the good uh, is the only thing that defeats this evil the whole evil that, uh, that Tolkien depicts. Um, So, so all that is going on. So I, I wanted to, to entitle this gathering darkness and, um, and the light of fidelity, because again, Tolkien's work has been so important for so many people. Uh, It has been very influential for, for many people. And we're approaching now almost 80 years since its publication date. Um, And I think many, (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. Many literary critics would have hoped that you know Tolkien would have gone away, um, that the Lord of the Rings would have just been, you know, put in the dustbin of of history. And yet, in many ways, with each new generation, or even um, you know, each new decade, I think the work itself continues to be so relevant for the for the events of the present time, because it, because the work itself is universal, and it's it's looking at. Uh, universal experiences of humankind um, that ultimately are of of human sin, of the work of evil in the world that is both a combination of sin but also the presence of uh, of the devil, um, you know working his way in a fallen world, but the overarching presence of of God as well. God has not abandoned the world, has not abandoned uh, humans Mm-hmm. Um, and Tolkien's work very much, in a literary way, reflects this. Um, so I think even now our own world is is facing a gathering darkness. Um, I, I really love the, uh, the historian Victor Davis Hansen. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he often talks right now that we're in the midst of a revolution, is what he says. We're in the midst of a revolution. He says we don't know which way it's going to go. He says the Bolsheviks could win; um, they might be defeated. But he says right now we're at the cusp uh, of a type of wave, and he said, "Who's going to win? We don't know." But we're in the midst of it, and so in that sense, um, we too are uh, you know, on the battle of the Pelennor Fields. We don't know which way this battle is yet going to go, but we know that. Fidelity um, to what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, and to the people who God has put in our path, we know that that is part of God's plan for overcoming the darkness. Um, so, in that sense, we Tolkien's work ourselves, we have to again remember the beginning of the Gospel of John, where He says, "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not." Um, so, Tolkien's work um, puts us right in the heart of darkness, uh, but he himself, his work presents the way out. So it's a very hopeful work. Um, and already right at the start of the return of the king, we see the light of fidelity present because it's been ever present through the theme of friendship itself, the theme of our whole course is um, is going to be, be examining. Um, okay, so the light of fidelity, gathering darkness in the light of Fidelity. Well, what is, what is fidelity? What is fidelity? So I'll throw that out to you. Simple question. What is fidelity? It's not a, it's not an investment banking firm. So what is fidelity? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Yeah. Faithfulness to what? To whom? Being true to your word. Mm-hmm. Good. Very good. Yeah, so faithfulness, being true to your word, anything else that you would want to add to what fidelity is? It certainly is faithfulness. Uh, Loyalty? Good. Loyalty. Uh, Again, but to what? To whom?
1: I think it's something along the lines of doing your part, you know, whether you be a pawn like Pippin or a, a captain of men, you know, doing your part, no matter how hard it is.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. And that brings in the concept of duty in regards to the idea of doing your part. Um, but one could argue, could one not, that Smagol is very faithful. He's very faithful. <laughs> what? He's precious. He's faithful to his precious. Um, he's probably the most faithful of all the characters in that sense. Um, because uh well, I won't say that, I don't really mean that. Um, but he's a very faithful creature, person. Um, and so one has to then say, well, what is this fidelity? You know, to what, to whom are you being faithful? It's a really important question. Um, so for Tolkien, fidelity. yeah, Anthony, are you talking? Oh, yeah, sorry
1: about that. Uh, I was gonna say fidelity. It it implies you know being faithful, being honorable, being truthful, but it implies to a to a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, to a yeah. to a lord, to a country, uh, to your faith, to your family, whatever. It's it's making yourself subservient to uh, what you perceive as a greater, into greater
4: purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. Good, yeah, excellent, yeah, so I think Julia said it was uh being true to your word right there, it's that sense of honor and of honesty, and so you are being faithful to the virtue of honesty um and all those things are things that are even beyond the self that you are giving your your faithfulness to um obviously, in the Christian understanding of fidelity, you really ought not to be faithful to things that are wicked or things that are sinful. Um, why not not to you hold fast to your, to your fidelity to the bottle? You know, if you've got a problem with alcoholism um, and every night you're really faithful, you make sure you have that, uh, that drink or double drink or triple. Um, those are fidelities that are no longer virtues, but are vices and they fall into a different category. Um, so, Again, the fidelity that Tolkien is uh, is painting is referencing uh, is obviously the faithfulness of of men and, and women of virtue to things that are good to people who are good uh, to other things uh, besides uh, besides themselves. So again, it's faithfulness to something or someone. Uh, obviously, to have that be. There has to be temptation to not be. Um, One can't really be faithful to something if there's no real temptation not to be faithful to it. So, in that sense, yeah.
1: One thing, it it requires a freedom, does it not? Like, Gollum isn't really faithful in a sense. He's habitual, right? He's consistent. But there's a freedom and fidelity, I think. We do, do have the
3: option to choose other, like the Blessed Mother, right? She was free. It could be otherwise.
1: And I think that's an important part to something being seen
0: as really faithful. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. Thank you so much, Shauna. Yeah. And that's also the point then regarding you have to have, you have to have a temptation of some sort. You have to have the temptation not to be faithful in order for the, for the virtue of fidelity to kick in um, because otherwise there's nothing there for you to choose. Um, so Fidelity requires a type of temptation, a temptation to betray the person um, to whom you gave uh, an oath or um or a vow. You know, sometimes when I think about fidelity, we often think of talk about it in terms of, of marital fidelity. That's often where you where you hear that word. Um and I recall a time when I was in graduate school and there was a, a Catholic married couple uh, whose marriage was breaking apart. And I'd already left uh graduate school to start up at Hillsdale College, which is where I first worked. And when my dad was he was dying of cancer. And I remember saying to my dad, Oh, Dad, could you pray for this couple because you know the husband's been unfaithful to the wife and their marriage is breaking up and they have you know many kids. And I, I remember my dad said, he said to me, he said, Fidelity is not that hard. He said, you never betray a friend. Um and I thought about that a lot. You know, fidelity isn't that hard. You never betray. A friend, um, so that I think really is a good segue into what we what we should start talking about tonight. Never betray a friend, um, and in that sense, it's not it's not that hard. Um, a little bit of self, uh, a little bit of self denial. So let's think about these images of fidelity that are presented to us throughout these first of the two chapters. Um, maybe if you can think about it from you know, chronologically beginning to end. And I'm tossing this out, um, tossing this out to you. Um, What are some of the, some of the examples of fidelity that you recall from these opening two chapters of return of the King?
3: Um, I think in, in both chapters, you see um, uh, Pippin missing Mary and Mary missing Pippin, I think Mm -hmm. in both of them and both wishing they could be like experiencing the thing they're experiencing with the other.
0: Good. Yeah. And that goes back to your point about what Aristotle says about the the only fullness of enjoyment is with a friend. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And if you recall about that too, they didn't part under the best of terms. Uh, Mary was mad at Pippin um, and they left their friendship was left in a type of anger, um, but one to the other um, that gets resolved in these, in these two chapters as well. They regret it. They wish for the other to be there. Good. What are examples of fidelity? Um,
1: there's a <laughs> uh, Faramir is out, you know, doing his duty, you know, obeying his father, despite, uh, you know, maybe having different ideas about what the appropriate course of action would be at that point.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. So we have the reference to Faramir, who of course will come in uh, more to the full as this, as this, uh, last of the of the three works continues what other examples of fidelity did you pick up oh on? we
4: also see um mary and pippin mm-hmm. they both uh, uh swore fealty they sw- <laughs> to uh their respective lords yeah
0: exactly and right so yeah.
4: that's uh that's uh another um oath of fidelity mm-hmm. and also you see it again later the with um of Aragorn and the lineage back to um is uh Isildur and the 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 paths of the dead there was a broken yeah. uh uh fidelity that was yeah, uh unfaithful yeah
0: yeah and that's extremely important and I want to talk about that in depth um is that that instant that historical instance of infidelity um and i don't know how many thousands of years ago that was do anyone know how many thousands of years ago that would have been three thousand three thousand years ago um wow okay so three thousand years ago so note that three thousand when we get to the point yes you got the significance of the infidelity of the uh the men of the mountain of of eric uh who are now called back to fidelity by aragorn at uh, the conclusion, of the passing of the Great Company chapter. I have um, another
1: example.
4: Excuse yeah, yeah. me. Another example. Speaking of the Paths of the Dead, when Aragorn said, "We're going to go through the Paths of the Dead," and everyone went, "What? You're doing that?" On that,
0: Legolas and Gimli said, "We're in." Yeah. Yep. That was fidelity. Well, remember they they even said we're in before he said where he's going. He said, "I'm going to go to," and <laughs> uh, Gimli Legolas says, "We're in," and then Aragorn said. I'm gonna to go to the past of the dead. <laughs> and they said, Oh, well, we're still in. Uh and so yeah, you have that fidelity or friendship um just so often, even in these first um, these first two chapters. Um, good. Any other any other points that you want to make about fidelity? I have a couple that I'm gonna point out. Oh, okay, Austin, go ahead.
2: Oh, okay. Um, sorry. Well, someone <clears throat> mentioned Kevin uh swearing fealty to Denethor, but I think also this that, that that's coming out of a out of a respect for Boromir's sacrifice for him. So there's kind of that's kind of a following up of that uh fidelity to each other in the fellowship.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, again, more fidelity of friendship that's present.
3: I think there's also um Eowyn wanting to kind of like swear fidelity to Aragorn, but he's he kind of rebuffs that because it's not like inappropriate like it's not he he doesn't return it he couldn't he can't return that fidelity i think and so there's kind of that as well
0: yeah it's inappropriate yeah Yeah. we'll talk more about the aragorn eowyn relationship i think next class um is when eowyn really comes more to the fore with uh with her behavior
4: another thing too i would uh probably add to uh, Caleb's point there is that, well, part of the rebuff of Awen is that Aragorn shows his actual fidelity for um, her father and her brother. And since they were not there and he was in haste, yeah. he, um, he, w- he was adamant on her not going. So in one sense, he was uh, not being able to return the fidelity. He was actually put in a positive light or in a different way as fidelity for the father and um, her brother.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even in that scene, it's a, it is a a scene where they're also talking about duty, but duty and fidelity are, I think are very closely linked. Um, he chastises her a bit and he says, uh, if there was a man that was in your place, he couldn't just leave because he wanted to be in the battle. Uh, you agreed to this and, and they is trusting you. Um, yeah, so she's an interesting character and we will definitely, um, we'll definitely get to her. Um, what about Gandalf? What about Gandalf? Yeah, you, you actually,
1: see, you see Gandalf's fidelity to Middle-earth as a whole.
0: Yeah. Like yeah. How
1: he, he points out to Denethor that, you know, he's a steward as well and he has a far bigger realm that he's, he's hoping for and looking at.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yes, yeah, we can't it Gandalf because he, of course, is central to yeah, servant of the Secret Fire. Yeah, I love that line. Um, yeah, so he's he's often said, "Oh, you bring bad news." Um, he's bringing bad news to Gondor. He brought bad bad news to um, to Rohan. Uh, he has that famous line from Vice President uh, Spiro Agnew, where he called people an what was it a nadering nabob of negativity? Do you know that line? um a nattering nabob of negativity uh so gandalf isn't just this nattering nabob of negativity he doesn't just come and say everything stinks and the world is ending i gotta go um because what is the other thing he says he says everything stinks the world is ending and what's the last thing that's so important that doesn't make him just nattering nabob of negativity well he tells pippin uh, repeatedly do not be afraid mm-hmm. yeah and what does he tell denethor Does he say yeah. Sauron's right on your gates and you stink? You haven't done anything? No. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think he points out that uh, he managed to prevent uh, an army coming at him from the West.
0: Good. Yeah. For what has happened. Yeah. But he also always offers, this is what you need to do. Yeah. This is the reality of the situation. And it's bad. Um, and it's bad because of what you didn't do before now. But he doesn't just leave it there. I think all of us know people. I know people right now, especially who are, you know, they're just so focused on the end of the world and everything's going to end this month, um, which I didn't personally know, but everything's going to end this month, and there's not anything we can do about it. But at the same time, I'm you know reserving a thousand pounds of flour for the end of the times that are this month. Um, so, so they're so focused on the end of the times, but without any tangible. I guess, roadmap of what to do about it. Um, Gandalf always comes in and he speaks the truth and he's very realistic about what the problems are, but he also says, this is what you need to do. Um, and so the same thing with, uh, with Gondor and with Dinithor. Uh Gandalf comes in, he does bring bad news, but he also brings advice and he brings suggestions of, of what to do. Um, but obviously and again, we'll get to Denethor more, not today, but in the, um, I think next uh, next session with us, as um, we can talk even more about Denethor. Uh, but obviously Gandalf and Denethor will come to uh, heads uh, regarding action and and behavior. Yes, yeah, so this whole opening of a story is filled with the light of fidelity, while also really presenting this uh this fear this palpable fear of what is happening and that is the the growth and the uh the forward motion of mordor and uh and the realization of, of what that's going of what that's going to bring but tolkien never leaves us in that place of despair because in some sense he can't um as a christian and all of us as christians you can't be left simply in that place of darkness because of you know the promises of our lord and the promises even of the christian life um regarding the uh, the immense power of of the good
1: yeah and if i may say in his own in his own life of having just passed through you know the battle of britain and the uh, terrible times that um the world had had seen and out of that uh you know horror they pa- had passed into a you know, some time of hope.
0: Good, yeah. When Tolkien himself, in his own youth, serving uh, as a second lieutenant in uh, in World War One, as well. So this is an author who is personally uh, experienced in war, and really the worst types of war, um, which would be the World War One, both use of. Um, of gases to uh, to destroy the enemy and maim them in, in horrific ways, but also the hand-to-hand entrenched combat um, that Tolkien was a witness to, uh, and just that extreme carnage that uh, World War One particularly is known for. Uh, World War II, of course, is known for its immense carnage, um, but for Tolkien, he wasn't himself a participant, but he was a witness to see the carnage of, of Civilization to civilization, just the complete destruction, uh, both Britain to Germany and Germany to Britain, of whole civilizations and cities and the beautiful things uh, destroyed. Um, Okay, so let me stop there and see, do you have any any questions about what we've been talking about or points that you want to make? Maybe this
2: is a... Maybe this question is a little too general, uh, but, um, I've always been a little taken aback by Tolkien by the fact that he doesn't include any sort of religion amongst the peoples of Middle earth. Like the only thing I remember was that like Faramir like turned to the west at one point to the island of Numenor, but is there a reason why he doesn't? Because I also just think that would be a really good way to like, that's the best way I can. Think of establishing fellowship amongst us um so is there a reason he doesn't have uh, religion play a role in the Lord of the Rings?
0: Yeah, no that's a great question uh and in fact, in uh, Tolkien's own letters, he talks about how uh he consciously in the revisions of the Lord of the Rings actually removes any explicit uh, mention of, uh, of Christianity and of, uh, of the Christian faith. Um, and the reason why he does this is that he, one, does not want to create a type of com- competitive religion to Christianity, which would be the religion of middle earth, for instance. Um, he does not want to do that because he recognizes the supremacy of Christianity, but he also wants to maintain a type of, uh, uh realism within his own world, uh, of of middle earth itself and within his own uh, cosmology, which I'll be honest, I don't totally understand what he means that middle earth actually existed, but it existed sort of before Christ that I don't quite understand that. Um, and I don't, I don't get it. Uh, but I think then that that removal of the Christian religion is that there isn't a competition to the real, uh, his own understanding of the ultimate truth. Uh, but he says so while nowhere is there any explicit religious uh, statement or, or uh, obvious ritual, he says that uh, Catholicism, specifically Catholicism, is everywhere within the work. But it's everywhere within the work um, in a uh, hidden or an implied uh, implied fashion. Um, and so you can see that through the the variety of characters and symbols and themes uh, that, uh, that are present within the work. Um, and again, so I think he does remove it so that, one, you've got uh, a world that is complete in and of itself, um, that is a, a reflection, but not this world. That's very different from C.S. Lewis. If you're familiar with Lewis, um, Lewis intentionally puts in uh, very blatant Christian uh, images and what are called allegories, which is the one-to-one correspondence of things within a story to what they actually mean. Um, Tolkien hated allegory. We talked about that a bit uh, in the last two um, the last two sessions. He hated allegory, and so I think that's the other thing too: is he does not want to impose this, uh, the Christian worldview, onto the reader. I think he wants the reader to be within that Christian worldview, almost without even knowing it. Because not not for any, I wouldn't even say for any evangelical reason. Lewis had an evangelical reason; he wanted to convert people to Christianity because it was true. Um, Tolkien, of course, believed Christianity was true but he felt that people needed to come to it without any type of tricks or deception.
3: I think you can see um, like, while there's not like explicit religion, you can see there's like these little lines and half sentences where it's like God's hand. Like, so I just, I'm rereading the fellowship to my son right now. And I just read this line the other day where um, right after Frodo and the hobbits get to Tom Bombadil's house. And um, Frodo says, did you hear me calling master? Or was it just chance that brought you at the moment? And then Tom stirred like a man shaken out of a pleasant dream. And what he said, he, did I hear you calling? Nay, I did not hear. I was busy singing. Just chance brought me then if chance you call it. And so I think there's all these little hints that it's really God's hand guiding these characters and guiding these events. But Tolkien never comes out and like says, that it was God behind this. There was God that put Tom Bombadil in this place, in this moment when you needed him and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And I think Caleb, that, that, that uh, that workings of Providence that are throughout the Lord of the Rings in really a masterful way um, is itself Tolkien's sharing of his own experience. Uh, again, through a very tumultuous, very violent, um, very death-ridden century, the 20th century um, but his own experience of the love of God that's that's there even in you could say, the proverbial trenches of of world war, World War One. I. I spoke a lot about his biography, I think in the the very first the first of these classes that I led. um but but yeah, just because religion is not explicitly within the work uh, in no way means that the author. Was trying to deny his own Christian faith. Rather, because he believes it so fully, it's almost like the world that he creates necessarily comes from his own worldview. Um, as a as a Catholic Christian artist. Um, he can't separate the two. But unlike Lewis, he doesn't feel the need. Uh, in fact he again he didn't like he thought it was a type of tyrannical behavior of the author to the audience to force uh, allegories on them um so instead there's so many th- gandalf is not christ he is a christ like figure um aragorn also is a christ like figure frodo is a christ like figure sam is a christ like figure all these christs are in uh, are in the or in the work or in the are in the story so you can't just say oh Aslan is where well, you can Lewis. Aslan is Christ. Um, that's what Lewis wants you to see. Um, Tolkien wants you to see that in some sense, Christ is in all of these figures. Um, but other, other elements are within these characters as well, um, because of the richness, um, even of the, the Catholic Christian, Catholic Christian worldview. But, but yeah, that's a common, it's a common complaint against Tolkien. um, but it's also one of the reasons why I think Tolkien's work has been so popular with Christians and secular uh, secular readers alike. Um, both sets of readers can find a, a common truth within the story, um, which I think is a is a good thing.
1: The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more way more by becoming a fellow today visit magnus institute.org copyright 2023 albertus magnus institute incorporated all rights reserved